share a few thoughts here. Um, Hebrews. Let's start there. I believe that this book uh, is targeting people who are second-generation Christians. Does anybody uh, know what that means? Is anyone a second-generation Christian in the house? Uh, I am, okay? I'm like a 50th-generation Christian, and so I really like this letter. It speaks to me. I like it. It seems things that I would think about. It's uh, challenging me in a lot of ways. So if you haven't read this letter, you, you take some time this week and read through it from the perspective of it's trying to encourage, I think, people who are starting to feel a little stuck, a little stale, like this is something that maybe uh, isn't as relevant to your life as the faith ought to be. Also, if you're a first-generation Christian, uh, like my beautiful wife, and you want to read this also, it's, it's, it's a part of the Bible. <laughs> it's very important for you to read. I mean, it's one of the most Christocentric letters, I think, in the New Testament. I mean, every single chapter is pointing towards Christ and showing how he is all throughout this story of the Hebrew Scriptures and how all of these things are pointing towards him. It reads kind of like a sermon. That might be why I like it so much. I mean, if you can read through it in like 40, 45 minutes at a, at, a, at a casual pace, I'd love to maybe just read the whole thing to you sometime as uh, just sort of a message and see what happens. Uh, we are getting to a chapter, or we've been in a chapter, sorry, all summer, chapter 11. And this chapter, to me, kind of reminds me of the, the, the part of the sermon that we call the rant. You know, any good sermon has a couple rants in it, right? Where like you just, it's kind of like the nail gun that construction workers use, you know, when they're just like, by faith, by faith, you know, all down the line, all these stories of faith throughout the, the Bible. And in this rant, I think it's meant to help people who are stuck, get unstuck and start to move forwards a little bit in their faith. There's something for all of us here. Verse 1, as Rosa read earlier, says by faith, uh, I mean, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. If that doesn't confuse you, I don't know what will. Uh, being sure of something that I hope for doesn't really make sense to me because that's the point of a hope. You're not really sure it's going to happen. You just hope that it's going to happen. I'm hoping. It's not hope if you know it's going to. I don't hope that gravity works. I got to actually have faith when I'm trying to defy gravity, right? I mean, I, I just, it happens. It works. I don't hope in it. What is even sure? What does sure even mean to us? Because I use the word sure when I'm not sure. Will and I went camping with a, a, a few this weekend, and a conversation like this would be very common between us. Will, did you remember the matches? Yes. Are you sure? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm, I'm 99% sure, but really saying sure means I'm not that sure. I'm sure I'm sure. What is sure even indicating? It's, it's, I'm sure enough. I think if I was to re-paraphrase verse 1, I would say faith is being sure enough that what you hope for is going to happen, that you're willing to take one step. How many of us want to be so sure about what's going to happen that we won't take a step until we're absolutely sure uh, uh, how everything happens? Faith isn't, it being, isn't being able to explain. It's being sure enough. 
Noah did not know necessarily how rain worked. He's not going around explaining the science of rain. He's not got a map out and all these charts and talking to people. You know, rain, it's, it's, it's evaporation, condensation, precipitation, and then I build a boat. It's, I'm pretty sure something's going to happen with water, and so I'm building a boat. I'm sure enough, at least, that I'm willing to put a hammer on now. Abraham didn't know necessarily where he was going, but he was sure enough that he was supposed to go that he took a walk. He didn't explain everything to his parents and his wife. He couldn't explain it. He didn't know. But he's sure enough, so I'm going to take a step. And that's a step of faith. That's also an example of a rant. Um, First generation, second generation. If you're not a Christian and you're here also, I think there's something for you in this story too. Because this, one of the stars of our story today is like a pagan woman and uh, just trying to figure things out. So maybe that would challenge you also. I have many hopes for all of us. Um, last week, Rod opened up the story of the life of Moses. And he will continue that story next week, basically because I accidentally studied the wrong verses. And so he's going he's to go back and do the right thing. And I'm going to do uh, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 11. So please stand with me as I read those verses. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient or unbelieving. This is the word of God. You may have a seat if you like. Why is this story in the rant? What's going on in the mind of the writer of this story that they would think, as they're passing through all the stories in the Hebrew Scriptures that, they, that come to mind, this one? At first glance, it kind of looks a little redundant. I mean, why would you mention the story of Moses and the Exodus and then all of a sudden go to another miraculous story? It seems like that's a little bit of a waste of an idea. I think that the author of Hebrews has some themes in mind here that would, uh, if we were really well acquainted with the story, probably spark a different attention than the story prior to this. So let's get into this story a little bit and see what develops and if this is relevant for this chapter or even this time. This story takes place in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, Joshua, it's, it's way back, the fifth, sixth book of the Bible, and between chapters 2 and 6. Feel free to go there with me. No, I will not be reading all of those chapters, but you're welcome to at your leisure. Um, kind of my backdrop of what's, in my mind, of what's going on with this story. Okay, it starts with a guy named Abraham who, like I mentioned before, has left his father's house, his mother and father's house, and has come to the land of Canaan to inherit it. God has said, this is going to be your land. He never gets any land except for like a cave that he buys, but he, he lives there for a long period of his life anyways. He has a few sons. Two of them are Isaac and Jacob. With these sons, I call them the Hebrew family. 
They create a persona. They create a type of people. They live on the outside of everything going on, yet they're extremely relevant and important to what's going on on the inside. They're the Hebrews. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, has 12 sons, and they go down to Florida. Uh, No, they go down to Egypt, and they... Uh, live there for quite some time and become a very, very great uh, number of people who they would be called the Jacobites. But Jacob was given a very special nickname by God that means God wrestler, and it's the word Israel. So they get the term, they get named Israelites. It's the same as Jacobites, but different. Okay, the Israelites. And they become a great nation. So the Hebrew family turns into the Israelite nation. Then what Rod was talking about last week, Moses, that guy, he takes them uh, by the grace of God out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years where they develop their religion and their faith, which becomes what we call Judaism. And so the Hebrew family turns into the Israelite nation, and then their faith is the Jewish, the religion. That, all of those terms are, are con- t- together or even used uh, to describe each other. Uh, that's the story of how this is kind of developing. And then we get to Joshua. What's going on in the mind of Joshua in this story? Well, it's been a long time living out in the wilderness. Miriam, Mary for short, is Moses' sister. She's kind of been our mother, our Hebrew mother, for the time in the wilderness. And recently she's passed away. That's okay. I mean, it's, it's hard. It happens. But uh, we also have the two brothers, the dynamic duo, Aaron and Moses. And Aaron has been our pastor. He's been our high priest. He's spoken on behalf of Moses, who's speaking on behalf of God so many times. And, and he's taught us about sin and sacrifice. And he's taught us about death. And we've been vulnerable with him with what's going on in our lives. And he's kind of led us to what righteousness means and to what holiness means and Just recently, he's also passed away. Okay. Would it add insult to injury to say that everyone except for Joshua and Caleb, who came out of the promised land, has also passed away? And then today, Moses did something that we were all afraid of many, many times. As he would go up to the mountain to meet with God for a month at times, we thought that he had died on the mountain, but he'd always come down. But this time he went up the mountain one last time and nobody's seen him. He's disappeared. We're all surprised, but we're not surprised. (laughs) It's a way for him to go. Joshua is Moses' second-hand man. He's got to act quickly because he knows how temperamental this group can get. (laughs) And so he's preparing uh, this Israelite nation, this Hebrew family, to go and take the promised land that was promised to them, was promised to Abraham, and and they're going to fulfill, finally, this promise. He's gearing them up to fight because it's a land that's already inhabited, and he's going to conquer it. So in Joshua chapter 2, we read his first movement. 
Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go and look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went, so they went. And they entered a house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay? <laughs> Doesn't really seem like what they're supposed to do. Um, <laughs> no. There's got to be more to it. I know that these verses are kind of vague, so I like to just think a little bit of what this would have been like. These two spies, like Frodo and Samwise, you know, they're like, we got to go into this land. We've never been there before. We know we got to do it. What's the first thing they got to do? Well, they got to cross the Jordan River. The text says the river's at flood stage. Back then, it was a lot bigger than it is now, and it's probably a little bit of a dangerous endeavor. So these two courageous spies standing on the east side of the riverbank have to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? Arm in arm, shoulder, you know, you sit on my shoulders, should we run and jump? How are we going to get across this treacherous river? Somehow, they managed to do this. In my mind, they're holding hands, I don't know, trying to get through stone by stone. Can you imagine then, standing on the west bank of the river, what it would have been like? You know, just imagine these two standing there, arm in arm, out of breath from this uh, crossing, and there for the first time, standing in the promised land. You imagine, just take a deep breath. We're here, (laughs) we're home. The ground isn't moving anymore. We can just stand still and soak it in. Must have been amazing. They then, the first city that they see is this outpost city that's very well fortified. And they say, okay, let's start taking notes and figure out how we're going to do this. He said, take special attention to what Jericho is like. Well, you can go see Jericho now. It's one of the oldest cities in the world, archaeologically speaking. And... Jericho is a pretty impressive place. Imagine these two spies trying to act uh, sneaky, getting in through the uh, narrow gate into Jericho, taking notes about how high the walls are. How many guards did they see? How wide is the wall? You know, it's probably about as wide as two chariots width. Okay, write it down. You know, who are they talking to? Well, it's probably a Middle Eastern city like all other Middle Eastern cities. You come in, there's tons of people trying to sell you something. Hello, Habibi, come into my shop. I I have a good deal for you. Please come in here. You clothes, they look so old. I have special clothes for you. Jericho only. And uh, <laughs> so they're getting pulled maybe in different directions. And I'm sure they're acting a little like, uh, a little obvious. So tell me, my friend, um, we're thinking of settling down here very soon. We're from out of town. And we're just wondering, I mean, what kind of security can you offer us here in this city? I mean, uh, <laughs> What, how long would you be able to live here if there was some army around trying to get in here? I, you know, I noticed you have a, uh, Jericho has a spring in the middle of the city. I noticed you have some water in the middle of the city and some palm trees. It's great. How long can we live here on those alone? Oh, six or seven years. Good grief. Okay, write that down. Um, imagine one of them gets a tug on the, sh- on, the, on the side of the shirt. From a woman looking a little risky... And they say, yeah, no thanks. And she's like, no, I, uh, what are you guys doing? I know what you're, I know who you are. What do you mean? I know who you are. 
Well, does it take a genius to see that you're carrying 40-year-old Egyptian gold and wearing some clothes that look and smell like they were pulled off of a dead Amalekite person? Um, But I think that you're one of the Hebrews, one of the Israelites. You better come to my house. I've got something I want to talk to you about. So she brings him into her house, and they begin to discuss her last chance. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. This is what Rahab says to them. I know that Yahweh has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We hurt. How Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea and for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites that live across the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Remember that phrase. We heard of it. Our hearts melted in, oh, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. But swear to me, that the Lord that you that by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family and I because I have shown kindness to you give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them that you will save us from death our lives for your lives the men answered if you don't tell me what we're doing or if you don't tell anyone what we're doing we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land <laughs> So she let them down by a rope from the window, for she lived in the wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on their way. The men agree, and then in verse 21, she said, let it be unto me as you have said. So she sent them away and they departed. And she she tied a scarlet cord in the window. Very interesting. So she's hidden these people. I, she brought them to their house, and then all of a sudden a knock at the door comes where somebody is from the guard saying, we know that you know that there's some spies here. <laughs> we all saw them. <laughs> and now we're, we're getting a little suspicious. And she said, they took off. I wanted to, you know what? And they, uh, you know, they just took, they ran away. And so you, you, you could catch them if you go now, but it's been a while. She's got them hidden in the roof, in this like flax, these stalks that she made a roof out of. And this is what she says to him. I want to make a deal. How does Rahab get to where she is? How do you turn so quickly on your people, on your nation? I mean, this isn't something that we in America actually like celebrate when someone does this. What kind of place in life does she need to be to so quickly turn away from her countrymen well I don't know (laughs) but it seems like a pretty dark place I don't know but maybe she's feeling like the way I've been living has been so deteriorating to me that I'd rather die trying to get out of the situation that I'm in than to spend one more day behind these walls in this city with these people. I wonder if any of us can relate to the feeling of feeling like 
the way that I've been living is, is supposed to have so much satisfaction. I mean, she's a prostitute. It's supposed to have pleasure attached to this. But this is not working. I'm not getting any lasting satisfaction. I'm not getting any lasting pleasure from this. And it's driving me crazy. So much so that I'm willing, to, at the first, ch- the first sight of somebody who can get me out of here, I'm going to turn in all my people. I'm going to turn against them. Rahab's in a, in a very dark place. And I find it very encouraging. Because there's been times in my life where I felt like I was in a, in a very bad place. That I've been living for things that offer me no satisfaction let alone very little satisfaction. And there are people in our book who are feeling the same things and give us an example of what to do. She's putting the spies in kind of an interesting position, don't you think? If you think about where they're coming from, this is something that they are supposed to avoid, actually. Notice in verse 10, remember I said to pay attention to that, uh, halfway through, the two kings of the Amorite cities east of the Jordan, whom you, in Hebrew this is the word cherem, feel free, try, cherem, okay, perfect, cherem, okay, this is a term that develops in the wilderness, like many other things, as they're developing their religion, okay, Uh, like ritual purity, this is something that that they're doing in the wilderness, they're learning how to set aside things to be holy and set aside things to be common and to wash at certain times and to to present themselves as uh, set aside for God is living with them. And if God is living with them, they have to be pure or it'll drive him away. And he is the most important thing to them. (laughs) Speaking of God, Another thing that developed in the wilderness is monotheism for them. This has not been a new, uh, um, uh, this is a new thing for them. In Egypt, polytheism, they have many gods that they're worshiping, but over and over we start to see that this is a very, very important thing to God that we realize. There's one God and it's Him. It's very important to Him that, that His people do not have idols in their lives. I think sometimes we see these things and think they're peripheral because they're peripheral for us. It's central to them. You shall not have idols in your lives. You ever wonder why he took them into the wilderness? Almost as a time to to peel back all of the layers of maybe things like idolatry and life that's lived in that kind of environment to be in the wilderness so that they can get a new, uh, a jump start almost, a reboot of how they worship. And so with that, this term develops cherem. Cherem is a extreme uh, term. Haram means to just devote. Harem means to devote to something in this extreme way. You can either be devoted to extreme holy purposes in a harem, or you can be devoted to something that's detestable and that needs to be destroyed. Both use. I'll show you. Um, Leviticus chapter 27 is a great example of this, if you'd like to turn or listen. Chapter 27 and verse 28. This also might help you understand Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. I just thought of that. Um, Nothing that a person owns or and cherem to the Lord, whether being a human, 
or an animal or family piece of property <laughs> may be sold or redeemed. Everything that is cherem to the Lord is holy of holies. In English here it says most holy, the most holy place. Kodesh Kodeshim is holy of holies to the Lord. That's very devoted. That's a devoted place. It's extreme. You can also take it to the other extreme of being devoted for destruction. Listen to this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 25. The gods of the Canaanites, you are to burn with fire. Do not covet their silver and gold, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. It is detestable to the Lord. 26. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you like it, will be cherem, for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detested, for it is cherem, for destruction. If I say the word Achan, what comes to mind? Flip back to Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to, say it, Cherem, Achan, one of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Why? Why, when you read this story of, of, of the, the Exodus and the narrative, does, does God say over and over again, be careful when you go into the promised land because there's idols and gods and people there that will entice you. Why does he say that over and over again? Don't go for those things. Make sure that you completely clean house. Is God scared of that happening? Sometimes when we repeat things, it's because we're scared. God is not scared of this. He hates it. He hates the idea of his people turning to idols, putting their hearts out to them to be crushed and to be hurt. He hates the idea, like my friends hate the idea of me getting hurt and so beg me to wear a helmet when I drive a motorcycle. Like all of you men hate the idea of your wife cheating on you. You hate it. That's how God feels about idols. And he wants idols and anything associated with them to be cherem. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods. It's number one on the list. Number two, you shall not make idols. Just to be extra clear. This is a central theme to people who follow the Lord. I wonder, is this something that we think about? Is this something that we consider, our, our culture, and our, are we ever thinking about if there's idols in my life, if there are idols in my heart or in my, my family or with my, or my children being enticed by some things that I need to step, I don't care how often they cry and kick and scream. Some things need to be dedicated for destruction. But it, we gotta, we gotta figure out what they are. We are on a conquest of our own. I mean, God has given us spiritual promised land for us to live in right now, to live in his peace and his rest. But there's a constant battle of being tempted toward idols. 
That's what the conquest means to me. It's, it's coming against idolatry and finding a place to be set apart as God's holy. What if I told you the ites of yesterday are the isms of today? Maybe. What if some of the Amorites, the Amalekites, or the Hittites of that day, following detestable gods, following gods that that harm people and babies and each other, what if those types of uh, ites are the isms of today? Like, uh, what some of the things that universalism leads to, or some of the things that neo-paganism leads to, or some of the things that not narcissism leads to. Christians, it's okay to destroy things that harm you, to remove things from your life that ha- that hurt you. It's okay to be violent against something that is tearing apart your mind and your marriage and your family. It's okay to devote that to destruction. What is it? The internet? Go on airplane mode. What is it? Computers, TV, movie, alcohol. What is it? Devote it to destruction. That's what the conquest means to me. So you can see the dilemma that the spies are up against because they're talking to Harem. They're talking to Rahab, a person they are not supposed to be uh, dealing with. But you know what I love about their decision to help her? This is the difference between following a dead idol that has no life and following a living God. Because our living God is a God who will not allow his people to be letter of the law people. He will even put stories in our book that, say, that people disobey an exact verse. Look at this verse. I just thought of it. Leviticus twenty-seven twenty-nine. No person who has been harem may be ransomed. They were all to be put to death. That's the letter of the law. And Rahab says, I want to be on your team. <laughs> what happens when you have a humble person saying, I want to repent, I want to, I want to try, I want to be right with your God? Well, they said, okay. Okay. We have a God who's slow to anger and abounding in, in steadfast love. We have a God who, who desires mercy over sacrifice. We have a God who wants to, who rejoices over people who are repenting. Okay. I used to work with people who uh, were highly addicted to, to, to alcohol and, and it has ruined their lives. And I remember any time one of them said, I'm done, I will do anything for them. But until then, I'm a little like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But if you want to make one step forwards, okay. Rahab has no hope. And they give her some hope. It's interesting how in Hebrew, they change the word for rope halfway through their uh, interaction with her. They, she lets the spies out of her window in rope, uh, with a rope. And then they say to her, um, please hang this 
red tikva out of your window. Does anybody know the word tikva? It's a very common Hebrew word for hope. It's, I can't find it any other place meaning rope, but I find it all over the place meaning hope. It just rhymes in English as a, as a coincidence. <laughs> it would be more linguistically speaking, uh, us saying uh, Hail Mary. That could mean several different things. Most of the time, it's sort of the same thing, whether you're praying or whether you're passing a football 100 yards at the last second. This is your Hail Mary. And then that becomes an analogy for when we're trying to ask a woman to marry us that we shouldn't be asking to marry us. It becomes a Hail Mary. You know, it's a, it's a long shot. But it might happen. Hang this tikva out of your window. Rahab, hopeless to the point where she's willing to be exposed for treachery and she receives from the people of God hope. That's what we're supposed to be. Giving tikva to people. Hang this hope. It might be a small thing to me to hang a rope out of a window, but to Rahab, it's everything that she has in this hope. I used to be Terem, but now I'm not sure how this is going to work. I don't understand the rope thing, but you know what? I'm sure enough to do it, to take a step of faith. Being sure enough in God that you're willing to make a move. Rahab and the spies. Next thing that happens in the story, uh, Joshua gets this group together after he's had some time with the Lord, and he tells him to walk around uh, Jericho one time each day for six days, and on the seventh time, seven times, and then yell really loud, and the walls are going to fall. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I've been hearing this story my entire life, which has caused me to, to almost not ask any questions about this story because it's so, you know, normal for me, but... Have you ever wondered, like, what, what is the purpose of this walls thing? Either God is just the most random acting person, or there's a point to it. I mean, is this just a collection of the most random s- stories ever? Or do some of them actually mean something? Why did Sa- Samuel have it rain at Gilgal? <laughs> Because it never rains at Gilgal. <laughs> Why did Jesus turn water into wine or spit in the mud? Is this just random or does it have something to do with something? What's with the walls? Well, consider uh, this thought. It may not be true. I think it's a good thought. This isn't the first time spies have entered the promised land. Joshua and Caleb were a part of a group of spies that you can read about in Numbers chapter 13 that went up. It was a very short period of time that they were even in the desert before they said, we're going to go take the land. They didn't have to be here for 40 years. Why why have they been in the wilderness for 40 years? Because of these spies. Moses asks these 12 spies, go check out the land. Tell me. What's the land like? What's the, what's the vegetation like? What can we expect to grow? What's the cities like? Are the people there nice? Are they mean? Are they village people? Or is there more of a, a structure 
uh, fortification around. It's a very common word for, for fortified. Mivtsar. M-I-V-T-S-A-R. It's, it's, it's just, are they fortified or not? That's something we need to think about. So they spy out the land. They come back. And here's what they say. Well, they've got fruit. They're so excited about this. We love this land. Only problem is, we're never going to be able to take it because the people there are giants. They make us feel like hobbits. And (laughs) there's no way we're going to be able to take it. Then they talk about the cities and say they are greatly fortified. In Hebrew, this is the word Beitzar. Well, that's a different word than what Moses said earlier. What's the difference between those two? Beitzar means impenetrable. This is a sign of their unbelief. There's no way. It's too thick. The walls are too high. They're impenetrable. It's impossible for us to do this. We're done. I think there might be a theme here. As we see, Moses actually uses this word, I don't know, sarcastically or at least to teach several times. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, hear these words of Moses. You were unwilling to go up, remembering the time of the spies. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out from Egypt to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites and destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say, the people are stronger and taller than we. And the cities are large with walls built up to the heavens. He says it again in chapter 3. He says it again in chapter 7. He says it again in chapter 28. Remember what you saw? Remember what your parents saw? Those walls that were supposedly built up to the heavens? Bezar. And then God says, all I'm looking for is somebody to trust me and be sure enough to take a step and just walk around these walls. I'll show you what I can do with walls. Walls then become for me something of a significant theme. Impenetrable walls exist in our minds, surely, if not physically. What is it? The walls are too big. The walls are too high and too thick between me and my my estranged brother. There's no way that's coming down. It's impenetrable. It's impossible. I can't repair that relationship. The walls are too high and too wide for my husband and me to fix this. It's impossible. Where do you draw the line of unbelief? The unbelief that frustrates God so much. Jericho becomes abortion. Jericho becomes sex trafficking. The walls are too high. We can't fix this. Jericho becomes uh, racism. Jericho becomes these things that are so big. World hunger or peace in the Middle East. And we say, no way. What if I told you that all God is looking for out of you is to just be sure enough that he wants you to, to, to go against this. To be sure enough to take one step towards the wall. What if I told you he doesn't want you to figure out how the walls are going to come down? 
while all he's looking for is the faith of a mustard seed. And they will, they will come down. Just be sure enough to take a step. What side of the wall are you on? See, if we could be on one side and be completely afraid, I, I assure you, we can be on the other side and be completely afraid. Ray, I've even said it. These people are melting in fear. Why do you think the walls are so thick in the first place? <laughs> if you're following a false god or if there's an idol in your life, um, my guess is it's a fear-based relationship. Something that you're, uh, an idol will do is it'll tell you, you must do this for me and then I'll do this for you. And it becomes so enticing that we say, okay, I've got to do this or else I'll never have this or I've got to have this and I, you know, I've got I've to do it. <laughs> and we then get it and we start to put bricks up. I'm not going to lose this. <laughs> and we start to stack them and stack. Who knows? How thick do you want this? And we can start to spend time making the biggest and thickest walls around whatever the thing is that we hold most dear. God will not allow for idols to be in the lives of his children. And if you're following God, either he's going to shake that wall very soon, or you're going to have to make a decision. What's it going to be? Well, maybe you could consider following the example of Rahab, who's acknowledging that this is not going to work. I'd rather not... I'd rather die than spend another day behind these walls that I've constructed and think they're so, so big and so strong. The last thing that she says to the spies is a profound line. Let it be unto me as you have said. I wonder if some of us are operating uh, under a premise where we know that we're like Rahab and we know that we've got drama in our lives and, and we know that we've got shameful things that's going on. And we refuse to, to take that step of faith because we won't say, let it be unto me as you have said. I wonder if, if for you this morning and for every step here on out, you are just going to say to God, I don't know how that you have redeemed me. I don't know how that you've forgiven me or why you must love me. I don't know. Uh, I don't feel that, but let it be unto me as you have said. I'm going to start operating under the premise that this is an actual thing that's going to happen. I'm going to be rescued. And so I'm going to start acting like I'm accepted into this family. Because God says to Rahab, you have a place in this family. You know who her son is? Rahab's son, Boaz. Rahab's legacy starts with the man who does the right thing in a culture of people who are all doing the wrong thing. Rahab's great-grandson is, great-great-grandson is King David. She definitely has a place in this family. Let it be unto me as you have said. That's a very profound line to say to yourself if you're feeling like Rahab tonight or this morning. So are the walls too high? Uh, where do you draw the line of unbelief? Have you created the walls? 
And will you take one step forward today? And whatever it may be, you're sure enough. Sure enough that God wants you to help the poor. Are you sure enough that God wants you to help the unborn or whatever it may be? And you don't know how it's going to work out. You don't have to. You just got to be sure enough to take a step. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell because the people marched around it. And by faith, Rahab, who hid the spies, perished not with those who were unbelieving. Let's pray. Father, we just believe in you. We just are trying to believe in you and help our unbelief. It's hard to believe that Jesus left heaven and came to earth as a man and lived a sinless life, never bowing down to an idol for us. Jesus, it's hard to believe that you were crucified on a cross as a destroyable thing, as a harem. You put yourself there so that we could be dedicated to holiness, so that we could have the righteousness that you want, the righteousness that you bring. Thank you for bringing Rahab-like people into your family and giving Rahab-like people uh, a new destiny and a new legacy and the ability to walk in in truth and the ability to live an idol-free life or at least uh, the ability to fight it. I pray for anybody in this room that feels like they are continually defeated that you would teach them, Jesus, of your victory and your how you've conquered all of these idols and all of these addictions and all of these sins that we bow to and are struggling with. I pray for anybody who's struggling with unbelief and feel like the walls are too high and feel like the walls are too thick for their marriage, for their addiction, or for their relationships, or for their monetary situation that you would say, I only need you to take one little step towards me and we'll see what happens. So I thank you, Lord, for all that you do for this family. Amen.